chapter thirty part two of autobiography memories and experiences volume two this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. autobiography memories and experiences volume two by moncure conway chapter thirty part two unitarianism in england possessed characteristics which promised better for a freelance than the more organized denomination in america this was largely due to the influence of two men john james taylor and james martineau mr taylor though not aged and his faculties still in full vigor had retired from the pulpit he was however much occupied by duties relating to the liberal movement which he had largely moulded and i could not venture to see him personally as often as his kindness warranted but his warm interest in the call for aid to the american freedmen in america which my wife had in hand brought me into sufficient contact with him to realize the sweetness of his heart and the elevation of his mind his serene spirit had risen above all egotism and pride james martineau was very different from taylor the leader of unitarians malgre louis he was alarming most of their preachers by his far-reaching researches involving negations whose corresponding affirmations were not yet clear i find among my notes one dated october twenty sixth eighteen sixty four went to the unitarian ministerial conference at mr ireson's church islington mr martineau opened the topic after tea it was how far the phrases applied to christ in the new testament for example lord saviour prince etc were really characteristic of christ and had any meaning for us now it was the most powerful piece of theological statement i ever heard he proved conclusively that these names all referred to the idea of a kingdom of christ begun after the alleged ascension the great characteristic of modern theology was he said a shifting of the scene of christ's power and influence from heaven to earth from a future to history consequently those phrases and titles have no religious meaning for us now it was very sweeping mr aspland j j taylor solly coupland means etc spoke i was the only one out of the fifteen present i believe certainly the only speaker who heartily and entirely agreed with martineau in addition to this memorandum i remember that in closing the discussion martineau said he must decline to answer any of the arguments that had been adduced from consequences the fact that the fallacious titles and phrases were used in their own unitarian hymns and literature and that all these might have to be expurgated could not be legitimately weighed against the claim of truth 
and fact though a leader of unitarians martineau was not a leader of unitarianism he had in his mind an ideal english church though for the moment it consisted of himself and his chapel it was to gather under its wings all the religious minds and make the nation a fountain of living waters for all races without any doctrinal christianization of them he was jealous of everything that tended to detach the unitarian spirit and critique from the general religious life of the country or organize it into a distinct church it was here that his contempt for consequences had serious effects on one occasion when there was reported at the annual meeting of the unitarian association a large bequest left it martineau declared that the money would tend to entrench in a sort of fortress a spiritual movement that should be perfectly free the sectarian wing of the association was strong but the personality and moral genius of martineau prevailed i doubt whether in christian history there can be found another instance of a religious association rejecting a large bequest of money none of martineau's large works convey the right idea of his peculiar power while unequalled as a preacher his attempts at systematizing what cannot be systematized are chiefly useful as proving the impossibility of any science of religion as a sympathetic minister he could console the sorrowful by pointing out the means of distilling some good from things evil but when he has to carry this out into all its corollaries the generalization breaks down martineau vainly attempted to carry into theism the optimism essential to it and admits that suffering is refining only to the already refined his great works on ethics and religion with all their beautiful pages and their learned surveys of human evolution must remain as monuments of the failure of theistic philosophy to meet the evil and agony in nature the last sermon i had heard in america was from ralph waldo emerson after theodore parker went silent his society in boston listened to emerson whenever he could be secured when he was to give the sunday discourse the hall was crowded with the most cultured people in boston and its suburbs and some came from salem lynn concord familiar as i was with his lyceum lectures they could not with all their charm prepare me for this inspiration this fountain of spiritual power this pathos and this was the man who was lost to the pulpit because the unitarian church preferred the sacramental symbols of a broken body and shed blood in ancient judea to the living spirit rising above all symbols great as emerson was in literature his hereditary and natural place was in the pulpit which his essays did indeed leaven under whatever sectarian forms but only along with more admixture of chaff than of honest meal with emerson's wonderful sermon still ringing in my ears 
i went to hear james martineau his chapel was a relic of the time when among dissenters there was a cult of ugliness fine architecture and stained glass being decorations of the scarlet woman in the gloomy little chapel i waited until the man should appear whose endeavors after the christian life had brought me help in my early solitude when martineau presently ascended the pulpit i was impressed by his noble figure but when his face shone upon us through the gloom when his gracious and clear voice was heard i said this is a potential emerson it is an emerson not banished from his pulpit but held fast thirty years as a unitarian leader this first sermon was disappointing in that it lacked warm blood but i heard martineau again and again and discovered that he was a new type of preacher that he was deeper than his books and i must take heed how i heard he was presently to me the great preacher he did not work the miracle we witnessed when emerson reascended the pulpit that cannot be done in a gown beneath which wings must be folded but this minister was meeting the spiritual need and hunger of best men and women in his audience of three or four hundred none had come except by inward attraction they did not come for god's sake for conformity or nonconformity but were individual minds taking to heart things generally conventionalized there sat sir charles lyell who had established a new book of genesis and who with his distinguished lady kept abreast of religious studies there was miss frances power cobb author of intuitive morals there was the preacher's son russell martineau the hebraist whose veracity prevented his acceptance of a place among the revisers of the authorized version eighteen eighty one being forewarned of the retention of certain consecrated mistranslations there were students of the unitarian divinity college now manchester college oxford trained to become its teachers such as estland carpenter and drummond but it would be a long catalogue that should name the distinguished men and women who found their nurture or their nourishment in that small chapel and who in the beauty and exaltation of martineau's discourse did not envy the cathedrals their fine arches and flaming windows a seat was always ready for me in the pew of sir charles and lady lyle it added to my happiness to witness that of these eminent friends in listening to the discourses of martineau each of which invariably surpassed the previous one on one occasion as we walked away together sir charles said quote, what strikes me with wonder is that so many people crowd to listen to the immense quantity of stupid sermons preached every sunday while it is possible to hear such a discourse as that when as time went on i gradually knew more about those gathered around martineau 
and the widely different opinions developed under his teachings this seemed an especial sign of his art he was preeminently the pulpit artist emerson's remark that there was more progressiveness and more enthusiasm in unitarian ministers of orthodox antecedents than in those of unitarian birth is true they whose freedom has involved struggle carry heat into their ministry but this is at some cost the career of martineau born among liberal thinkers suggests that the better service may be done by those who have had no personal quarrel with the dogmas they clear from the paths of others less smoke mingles with the flame of their lamp it was a relief after so many weary years of strife and polemics in america to have no further need to preach about slavery and dogma i was not in an aggressive spirit and got on fairly well with the right-wing unitarians in england occasionally preaching in their chapels two or three familiar with my heretical course in america kept a suspicious eye on me i was invited to the annual festivals of the association and at their first soiree after my settlement was called on for a speech i meant my remarks to be particularly friendly all round but something in them or possibly in himself excited old dr aspland who spoke with severity of the presumption of rationalists in supposing their opponents less candid than themselves dr aspland was a venerable white-haired gentleman with a ruddy broad benevolent countenance he was a historic figure in english unitarianism and without knowing the cause of his rebuke i received it in silence i had for several years been passing into religious states derived purely from my own experience at one point or another things caught from some master slipped from me and new thoughts or thoughts of thoughts had surprised me even after i had parted from the traditional christ i had preached at cincinnati a series of sermons on characteristics of christ in one of which i was uncritical enough to speak of the healing miracles as attributable to the power of a perfect man combined with the potency of faith in those healed i had for years been too much absorbed in slave emancipation to study books on my shelf demonstrating the late origin of such narratives when in london i was able to pull myself together i found that my flesh and blood jesus was as yet really a vision i had been too busy for a thorough critical inquiry into the evidence even of his historical existence the man i now had in mind was not a mere dead jew nor was he on the other hand an ideal human character i was prepared to find in jesus could he be proved historical at all a man with some faults but the preliminary question was what had we to do with jesus at all the answer then appeared to be nothing 
except that he and his supposed teachings had become in the religious development of christendom a sort of language through which alone the people could be reached but to acknowledge this was to recognize that he was in some sort a providential man not exactly supernatural but raised up by god for a certain mission nothing could have been a more comfortable christology in religious london in the years following darwin's great discovery the origin of species had been published only a few years but already the demands of orthodoxy on faith were lowered insistence on detailed dogmas was relegated to the conventicle the educated forces of both church and chapel unitarian or trinitarian were concentrated on the task of defending their common foundation belief in the divine existence and government when john morley was spelling god with a small g a hallelujah could be raised for herbert spencer's spelling unknowable with a big u it was a great day for theists especially for those who ascribed to jesus any exceptional place in the order of the world it is now strange to me that in those early years in london i did not recognize in the collectivist deism a mere ism some years before i had declared at cincinnati that jehovah was a war god to be classed with mars but it was long before i realized the meaning of confucius in saying quote, to worship a god not your own is mere flattery i called myself a theist without reflecting that a worshipper of mumbo-jumbo was equally a theist but i can now see repeated in my experience in quasi-embryonic changes the spiritual history of the early believers who lost their friend and brother jesus by his absorption into a giant omnipotence impartial source of good and bad really my theism had brought me unrest the experience that gave birth to my fable of the monk and his christ vision chapter eighteen had made way for another that reversed the story i had clung to a vision of the god instead of the man and my living jesus was leaving me as if saying since thou hast stayed i must flee i could not worship the creator of this predatory universe an unmoral cosmos evolving all evils and agonies and at the same time genuinely love a man because of his abhorrence of the cosmic horrors and all inhumanity for a time i tried to satisfy my heart by projecting my lost jesus into the cosmos deity he was a father he was love he was the supreme light i still made melody in my heart with the dear old hymns thou hidden love of god whose height whose depth unfathomed no man knows and come o thou traveller unknown whom still i hold but cannot see but how can one's heart sing 
thou hidden cosmic love without laughing till he cries no i could not feel what my dear professor clifford called cosmic emotion and in this unrest moved with conscious purpose where i had before unconsciously moved on my earthward pilgrimage there was one notable difference between england and america with regard to the ethics of heretical thought in america it had become axiomatic among unorthodox scholars that their convictions must be boldly avowed but in england the intellectual men even in the middle of the nineteenth century generally regarded it as the truer morality to keep to themselves novel and disturbing ideas or discoveries after the revolutionary publication of darwin in eighteen fifty nine the press and pulpit were so filled with controversies that it was hardly possible to observe the admonition against casting pearls before swine tennyson who substantially agreed with martineau's views regretted their publication and even matthew arnold in his first heretical steps censured colenso for not writing in latin with regard to tennyson it should be said that his favor for exclusively esoteric expression of skeptical ideas was due to his tenderness for human minds and hearts and his dread that they should lose the consolations of childlike faith as he had lost them this martineau recognized but wrote to tennyson's son quote, i cannot see that we are entrusted with any right of suppression when once profoundly convinced of a truth not yet within others reach End quote. indeed i believe that martineau was the first scholar of high social position who entered on a ministry quite uncommitted to any sect and absolutely consecrated to the search for truth but martineau had entered into this outspoken role through the scientific threshold his ancestors were men of science and he himself began his studies with the intention of becoming a civil engineer it was the imprisonment of richard carlyle and his wife for publishing the religious works of thomas paine and the general peril of free inquiry and printing that induced the young aristocrat to leave his scientific plan and devote himself to religion carlyle was talking one evening of socinianism he never called it unitarianism and said he had once or twice met martineau but not enough to form any judgment about him most men of his acquaintance who went as far as martineau went farther they were apt to keep silent in such matters quote, i remember well he said going to your chapel to hear the famous mr fox he was eloquent it was like opening a window through london fog into the blue sky but i went away feeling that fox had been summoning those people to sit in judgment on matters of which they were no judges at all in this carlyle was mistaken the audience at south place being in chief part educated gentlemen and ladies 
who were centers of influence. Quote, I remember well, continued Carlyle, when Strauss's Life of Jesus appeared in England, that a number of men I knew, who had long held the same views but never dreamed of publishing them, were shocked. Some who agreed with him could not forgive him for publishing his views, and called it a punishment when he married an actress and was divorced. End quote. In speaking of Martineau again, Carlyle said he had once travelled with two or three friends from Scotland to London. The conversation was mainly on religious and philosophical subjects, and of a critical and destructive kind. Quote, Martineau sat in a corner of the compartment, leaning back with his eyes closed during the talk, but I am well persuaded that he heard every word that was said. End quote. William Johnstone Fox, Member of Parliament, is the most notable instance with which I am acquainted of a man of genius so entirely concentrated on the issues of his own time that his fame had passed away with them. He was for nearly twenty years the most famous orator in England. Neither Bright nor Cobden could be compared with him, but in 1864, ten years after his public career had closed, the people generally who had idolized him hardly knew that he was living, and the new generation had no knowledge of him. Fox was residing with his wife at 3 Sussex Place, Regent's Park, where we sometimes passed an evening with him. He was a picturesque figure there in his elegant drawing-room, his white hair parted in the middle, fell in wavelets beside his serene and broad forehead, and his countenance held a rosy tinge still, his seventy-eighth year. He talked much of Browning, whom he knew when he, Browning, was hardly out of boyhood, and whose poems, as well as Tennyson's, he was the first to review with praise. Browning, he said, used to spout poetry when he was a boy. In talking of our South Place hymn book, I ascribed a tune to the wrong composer. It was not by him, said Mr. Fox, but did not give the true name, which I afterwards found was Eliza Flower. Jealousy of Eliza Flower had caused a separation between Mr. and Mrs. Fox, and I concluded that her name was not now mentioned by them. The orator under whose voice vast crowds in all the halls of England had bent, as Froude said, as forests beneath the storm, was not without some of the old fire, and the charm was still in his voice. His love of art and beauty, which had educated Unitarians out of their lingering notion that godliness was akin to ugliness, was visible in the decoration of the room, and even in his velvet coat, which harmonized with his armchair. He listened with pleasure to the stories I told him of emigrants from his congregation whom I had known in America, and also to what Longfellow had told me of his visit to South Place. When he entered, a stranger to all present, they were singing his Psalm of Life, the first time he had ever heard any poem of his sung as a hymn. 
longfellow was charmed by the sermon which was on shakespeare after the service he spoke to the preacher and went home with him to dinner all of which mr fox remembered he spoke with admiration of margaret fuller whom he had entertained also of emerson and theodore parker mr fox was still able to pass an occasional evening with mr and mrs william mallison his old friends mr and mrs peter taylor and my wife and myself were always present we sometimes played spanish merchant or perhaps whist then read a play of shakespeare each one of us taking a character the play was selected in order that we might listen to the sonorous voice of fox in some favorite character i well remember the impressiveness of his interpretation of the king in part one of henry the fourth it was indeed a precious experience to know the man who was the chief orator of the corn law agitation who helped to found the westminster review and at whose feet in south place chapel had sat hazlitt thomas campbell john stuart mill douglas gerald lee hunt sergeant talford john forster crab robinson browning macready the novellos hanels brabants brays howitz cowden clarks harriet martineau helen fawcett sarah flower adams and her sister eliza flower my old friend mr lyon told me that during the corn law agitation so many pious dissenters were enlisted that the meetings were apt to be solemn some of the young people wished to have dancing in the halls after the speaking was over but were afraid of offending the pious this was mentioned to fox who after an eloquent speech rose again and cried i am in favor of free trade in hops thenceforth the gatherings often ended with hops mr fox died on june third eighteen sixty four i assisted his old friend the reverend mr mallison at his burial in brompton cemetery on june twelfth a memorial service was held in our chapel and my discourse listened to by his old friends and printed by the society seemed to link me to the intimate history of the progressive movement he so long led but by the historic chapel itself i was linked to a far larger movement the great and solemn procession of the generations of martyrs aspirants leaders who suffering and laboring for beliefs not ours yet by their fidelity and freedom rendered possible in london a congregation holding truth super sacred their monuments were close around us our chapel was built on hallowed ground dean stanley told us of an english bishop who visited the graveyard of city road temple and asked the sexton if it had ever been consecrated yes was the reply by holding the remains of the servant of god john wesley nearby are bunhill fields consecrated by the dust of the saints of descent the homes of moore and of milton smithfield with its ashes of martyrs 
and nearer still the cemetery of the quakers where amid many graves but one is marked this by a small headstone bearing the name of england's greatest religious genius george fox from these graves arose a cloud of witnesses to surround me when in the course of my ministry occurred our memorial services in honor of some of their successors w j fox lincoln cobden dickens maurice mazzini mill strauss livingstone lyle clifford george eliot dean stanley darwin longfellow carlyle emerson louis blanc harriet martineau mary carpenter colenso renan tennyson huxley end of chapter thirty part two recording by lucretia b